Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what streaming service you use for your podcast listening pleasure. This is Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Doing something a little different today, again, an introduction to the book, Allocator's Edge, A Modern Guide to Alternative Investments in the Future of Diversification by Phil Huber. Phil wasn't available this week, but we do hope to catch up later in the spring. Consequently, this isn't a full summary or book review, just an introduction. So I'll save much of my material for a talk with Phil in April. Getting a little out of the way now about the book will afford us more time to talk about how Phil does what he does as CIO of Savant Wealth Management outside of Chicago. The book's importance from a timing perspective is laid out in the foreword by Cliff Asnes, managing and founding principal of AQR Capital Management, where he makes one of the cornerstone viewpoints of this podcast, that more expensive starting valuations lead to lower expectations of future returns and vice versa. An extension of that, my words, not Cliff's or Phil's, is that longer term returns, say 10 years out, are directionally relatively forecastable, especially if valuations are at one end of your sample or the other, as Cliff opens the door to in his paper, an old friend, the stock market's Schiller PE. That's not implying Cliff would agree with anything I'm saying here. And I think other models have emerged that might have even more explanatory power over a 10-year horizon for returns. But one theme of this podcast is that we are odds makers, weighing probabilities best we can. None of us has a crystal ball, and neither CAPE ratios or anything else in my toolbox is a guarantee of the future, not for this year or the next 10. But there are always ways to at least put the odds slightly in your favor and improve your odds of success above just hope. Hope is not a strategy. More on that in the future. So when Phil opens up his part of the book, he starts talking right away about the 60-40 portfolio. That's 60% stocks and 40% bonds. And that's assumed to be the starting point for an asset allocation as a registered investment advisor or wealth manager taking over money for clients. Phil even shows the Schiller-Cape ratio going back over 100 years through about, I'm guessing, the date he handed the manuscript off to his publisher. And I only say that because valuations are even higher today. And I don't know if I went over what a CAPE ratio is. CAPE is an acronym. It's the Cyclically Adjusted Price Earnings Ratio. And what Robert Schiller was doing there is saying, instead of just looking at a trailing 12-month PE, price earnings ratio, let's go back 10 years, and it's adjusted for inflation. Because over a 10-year period, you might have a business cycle in there, a recession. And that kind of gives you a smoothing effect, a better perspective on what valuations are like for a consistent trend of earnings for a particular company. And you can do that, in this case, we're doing it for the entire large cap stock universe, uh, the S&P 500. Historically speaking, just as an example of previous comments made about relative forecastability, if you buy stocks with a starting CAPE ratio closer to 10, you should expect a higher 10-year return than if you buy with the CAPE ratio closer to 40, where we are kissing the last couple of months. The return on bonds, using the 10-year treasury as an asset, tends towards that starting yield, which end of last week was a little over 1.8%. Phil quotes Cliff as estimating a real, that is after inflation return, over the medium term of 1.4% for that blended 60-40 model portfolio. I don't know the nominal return or inflation assumptions here, but others share their forecast the same way in real terms, so it's fine. For instance, GMO's Jeremy Grantham is a bit more pessimistic. He has published an estimate of a minus 7.3% real return per annum over the next seven years for the S&P 500 and minus 4% a year for U.S. bonds. 
So you don't need to plot a calculator to know that with a 60-40 portfolio, you're going to lose between a third and a half of the purchasing power of your assets, no matter which way you go. So for wealth managers, investment advisors, individuals, know that the last 40 years are without precedent for the steady decline in interest rates that led to great bond returns, coinciding with great equity returns, albeit with more volatility in the latter. So assuming anything between a negative 7% and a positive 1.4% real return annually probably isn't going to meet your retirement goals. So then what do we do? Still in the forward of the book, Cliff talks about what his profession, and the Q in AQR stands for quantitative, calls styles or factors, also once known to me as anomalies because I didn't think they were supposed to exist in an efficient market. What I mean is that in an efficient market, you shouldn't be able to buy a basket of the cheapest stocks known as the value factor and outperform your S&P 500 benchmark or do the same with the high quality factor or the low volatility factor or the momentum factor. But you can over different periods of time in history, those strategies have worked. You can use those factors to do just that. And Cliff has made a very good living exploiting their existence. But the structure of the products Cliff's firm, AQR, uses to offer those products to his institutional clients have historically been in private partnerships. Nothing you would see on your discount brokerage website, for instance. Broadly speaking, these investment vehicles are bundled together in a category called alternatives, which tells you about as much as the term hedge fund, which is nothing. Uh, so that leads to the other types of alternative investments, private equity, venture capital, and a whole bunch of credit alternative products Phil gets into later in the book that are very interesting to me. I'm especially intrigued by the insurance-linked securities and catastrophe reinsurance products. Then he goes over some even more esoteric stuff like shared home equity contracts, collectibles, and art. But anyway, that's where the subtitle of this book comes from, A Modern Guide to Alternative Investments in the Future of Diversification. In the subject of the opening chapter of the book, what does that term even mean? If I didn't share this already, let me clarify. This is really a book written for financial advisors, which is where this podcast is mostly directed to anyway, but not entirely. If it can better inform a client of the financial advisory world or a sophisticated do-it-yourselfer, then I'm all about making that happen. So with that perspective, back to the book. Phil is suggesting that you address the poor prospects of the 60-40 asset allocation by adding in a portfolio of these alternative investments within the larger portfolio. And he uses a range from 10 to 30%, around 20% of the total pie as an example. And a financial advisor, like Phil, can help you choose among those alternative investment options more easily than in the past because of a new category within that category called liquid alternatives, or liquid alts for short. That's a potentially confusing sentence, so I'll explain it a little more simply. Those sexy hedge fund strategies that previously were only available through private partnerships now exist, some of them anyway, in mutual fund structures, open funds, closed funds, ETFs, and something called interval funds, which is like a spin on the closed-end fund. But, and there's always a but, with hedge funds, because of the perceived higher risk really stemming at a minimum from increased complexity, opaqueness, the use of leverage, etc., the SEC set rules on who could and could not invest in hedge funds. The term is called an accredited investor, which is just an income and net worth test. There was also a term at one time called a sophisticated investor um, that I remember back when I had a hedge fund. I think it still exists, but I'm not 100% sure. I've been able to find that before I recorded this podcast. But the point is, it does not appear to me that just anybody can buy these particular mutual funds. So that leads to another caveat about these liquid alts, the mutual funds that offer these alternative investment strategies. 
As I said, Phil's got a list of the public funds in an appendix broken down by category of alternative strategies in the back of the book. I typed a few into my Schwab account as a test and was denied for one of a couple reasons. If you've ever noticed four different tickers for the same mutual fund and wondered why, mutual funds have different share classes, as they're called, due to what distribution channel they're sold through. Each will have a different fee structure as a consequence of those channels, and you should be careful when you buy a fund that you're not paying an unnecessarily high fee like a front-end load. But I'm not going down that path any further other than to say the few funds listed in the back of the appendix that I tested were what are known as institutional shares, meant to be sold to, yes, institutions like a registered investment advisor, who can then turn around, I suspect, and allocate those funds and pieces to their clients. Kind of an interesting gatekeeper position I never really thought about, like funds of funds that built their businesses on selling access. But I don't know that that's right just yet, and that's another podcast. So anyway, I either had no option to buy the fund or it had a half million dollar minimum, which I'm sure in the SEC's eyes serves the same purpose. I don't know what funds are available at retail directly to a retail investor, if any. There are other investment sectors that were once considered alternatives from real estate to commodities, and Phil does a great job going over those. Those are obviously readily available to the retail investor. One thing that is missing for me is what to do about the other 80% of the portfolio that still appears doomed to disappoint. There's also a fair bit of reference to elements of modern financial theory like standard deviation of returns and risk-adjusted returns that the quote-unquote dogma in the title of this podcast refers to and that I will over time encourage investors to walk away from. That's my personal bias. But those references don't steal any of the meat from the value of the messaging in this book. Also, I referenced a paragraph about inflation from this book in the morning kick last week. Phil has equally sage comments about gold, including great data from the aforementioned GMO. This is a really good book for financial advisors. I wouldn't be surprised if it showed up as a textbook in this certified financial planner program someday. So that's it for the introduction to the book. I was going to do a separate morning kick. Uh, but I didn't get around to it this weekend. And that's all I have. Have a great rest of the day.